on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and maybe some things I say in the podcast might or might not represent the views of my employer. What we have here is a giant chocolate wheel that Sally just spins and wherever it lands, <laughs> that's what she says. How are you, Sally? Yeah, I'm really good. Um, but maybe I'm just going to take this moment to uh, hum a little song. <clears throat> Uh, no, I'm kidding. We, we don't have the rights. We don't have the rights to sing other people's songs on this podcast because there's a whole raft of copyright issues. I can't just share someone else's song and say we're broadcasting it now and it belongs to the On The Job podcast. Do you know that right? was one of the few things that was banned on the Big Brother set? Really? Oh, you, yeah, humming. You weren't allowed to hum or sing another song because the cheap tight asses at Big Brother didn't want to pay the royalties for people singing. That's so funny. You could you could, also- you could bonk anyone in the room and pick your nose and you know fart in public and all that sort of stuff. But don't you sing, um, you know, "Achy Breaky Heart" by Billy Ray Cyrus because he's going to come after you for the cash. So there's also this um, hilarious and really effective protest tactic where. I haven't seen it used in Australia, perhaps it is being used, but people across the US and TIFA-type organisations or groups have been showing up at far-right neo-Nazi events and playing pop songs in the background of people's speeches and so anybody filming it can't post it on YouTube because of the copyright issue. Genius! So, isn't that funny? Nobody used that against any workers' rights events, please. <laughs> So the K-pop is bringing down neo-Nazism <laughs> in the United States. There's something beautiful about that. We are talking about this issue because copyright plagiarism, the life of the freelance journalist in the digital age, is a, it's a tough road to hoe and it's increasingly more important that we have quality journalism. All the issues in the world as they stand require deep investigation, power being held to account, and a level of uh, scrutiny which gives us all confidence that the institutions that govern us, our politicians are doing the right thing, and that we've got an ongoing conversation about what's best for everyone in the society. But it's harder and harder to find jobs for journalists who want to do that important public interest work. Yeah, and, and half of the reason is because it's hard to make a living out of being an investigative journalist when the moment you publish something it gets ripped off by, you know, another publishing house or another journalist. And, you know, we're going to talk to our next guest a little bit about copyright and, you know, where the the right line is to strike a balance between access to information and also protecting someone's labour. And it's a really interesting conversation. So let's meet her now. This is Ginger Gorman on the job. Sally, the world of journalism has been turned upside down over the last 20 or 30 years since the demise of the printed press. It's still there. It's a bit bespoke. It's a bit like vinyl records. There's a sort of like a certain cohort of the population, like myself, that likes the physical media, but most people not so much. I don't think it's like vinyl records at all. <laughs> I think you just wanted to say it was like vinyl records. <laughs> to make it all about yeah. me again. I'm really good at that, aren't I? I mean, it's... To me, it's kind of... They like the physical, the tactile nature. Oh, like holding a newspaper. Holding it and, you know... No, I'm not into that. <sighs> Millennials. <laughs> but I I mean, what, I mean, one of the biggest impacts on the media, right, is that they've had to completely change revenue models. So instead of buying a physical paper or people putting advertising in the physical paper, it's like digital advertising, which has to be driven by clicks, which means we're seeing, you know, more sensationalist stories or just like a... 
a pressure on digital journalists to just pump out content, you know, with targets every hour. And to work for nothing uh, in order to get printed so that they might get a job in the future and then to wake up in the morning and they've written something great and realise that some arsehole has basically plagiarised their work and there's very little you can do about it. And all of these issues now confront people who do want to do public interest journalism and do it properly and do it with the resources required. And that is also compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic, which has seen traditional media and its digital platforms shut down mastheads all over the world, including here in Australia. So what is the future for public interest journalism, people who want to do it properly, and who are the people that are actually trying to keep the flag flying? Well, we're going to meet one right now. Ginger Gorman is one of those people. She's an award-winning social justice journalist, a cyber hate expert, which is something we've talked about before with Karen Percy from the uh, MEAA, and also uh, she's done a TEDx talk. She's, you know, welcome wow. to her TEDx talk. <laughs> and she's been writing a lot about these particular issues in, in recent times, and she joins us here on the job. Hey, Ginger, how are you going? Thank you so much for having me. It is so lovely to be here. As you've both said, journalism over the last 10 years has really been in crisis. So we've seen the rivers of gold, classified advertising dry up. A lot of outlets have gone online and this has created the pressures that both Sally and you were talking about. So there's a huge digital hole to fill and, of course, at the same time there's less and less journalists. So The stats that I just got from the MEAA, so this is the Journalism, Entertainment and Arts Alliance the other day, they're saying that they believe 5,000 journalists have lost their jobs in Australia in the last decade and 1,000 of those last year. Now, those are only union members. So if you can imagine all the people who are also non-union members, this is a crisis in our industry. And it has all kinds of ramifications for journalism, especially, as you say, we've piled COVID on top of that crisis. And so, like, obviously, that is a terrible experience for all these workers losing their jobs and their livelihoods. What's the impact on the industry and for sort of broader communities with these people not contributing the work they were before? So this is interesting, right, because people love to hate journalists. I think that when they do those trust (laughs) surveys, we come down the bottom. I think we're below even the clergy. But what we have to think about is what is the point of journalism in society? What do journalists do? And essentially our role is to hold power to account. So what you now have in the broader society, if you think about all these heads, all these papers that have closed, all these journalists who are no longer investigating these stories, you have a huge public interest gap. We don't even know what we don't know. I think there's something like 21 government areas, local government areas in this country that have no press at all. So what is going on there? We don't know. And this is really damaging to democracy overall. You have to have those really great investigative journalists and journalists of all kinds going in there and asking the hard questions. Otherwise, you end up with a really corrupt and damaged democracy. So as those mastheads close, Ginger, and journalism tries to adapt and find a way to still be relevant, freelancing becomes a way that journalists make a living and and try to piece together enough work to make it sustainable. Give us a a sense of your freelance experience. What have been the things that have worked and what are some of the things that really drive you mad about being a freelancer? 
So freelancing is interesting. Some people do it by choice. So I was made redundant by the ABC in 2015 in those kind of awful Hunger Games environment that Mark Scott created. And I thought I would just try freelancing before I decided what I wanted to do and I decided I loved it. I love it because you've got a lot of choice and you can decide which issues you want to pursue. However, it comes with great precariousness. So you don't necessarily know where your next bread and butter is coming from. What I have done, which some other freelancers perhaps struggles with, is create a really complex business model. So my income streams are coming from all different places. And that is really how you survive as a freelancer. So for example, I might spend six months on a story about brain injury and domestic violence, and I may only get paid $2,000 for that story. But then I do media training and I get paid thousands and thousands for a much lesser amount of work. So I cross-subsidize that work. However, in the pandemic, that really complex business model, which stood me really in good stead for a long time, that also failed just because of the way that COVID hit the world. And a lot of freelancers are reporting, you know, 30 to 40% income drop which was already precarious, you know. So, yeah, it's been a very hard time for freelancing. And we should be scared because it means that so many stories, including about the pandemic, are not getting told. Just to editorialise for a moment, I feel like over the last 12 months there's been a like a misunderstanding of what the role of journalists is and what work actually isn't. And the reason I think of that is I think about all the live-streamed press conferences through the COVID era and members of the public watching journalists in action asking questions. And what I observed was, first of all, a misunderstanding perhaps of the work that actually has to go into excavating details and answers from people. Like it's actually quite a lot of like labour that needs preparation and training and all the rest of it. But then there was also... I witnessed just in my sort of social media massive echo chambers an entitlement to journalists' work. So sort of like, well, you're delivering information that should be on the public record, therefore we are all entitled to your work even though you've had to put in a bunch of hours and training and preparation for it. Does that resonate with you? So there's so many points I want to pick up from what you've said, Sally. Absolutely. Journalism is a public service and therefore people are feel entitled to it, but who pays for it? <laughs> you know, since journalism essentially went online, there's a feeling among the public that it's free. And the problem is that it's not free. You know, at least once a week I get asked to speak or do something for free. And I'm a single mom. I have two kids. I run two businesses. You know, I have a lot of bills to pay. I can't come and speak at your workplace or write for you for free. So, for example, government departments have asked me to write for free. The ABC has asked me to present for free. The police, two different police forces have asked me to present for free. So the problem is it actually is a skill that requires expertise. And it's funny, like I saw a lot of tweets in the pandemic, people saying, why aren't journalists asking this? And I wanted to write back and say, which journalists? There are hardly any journalists left, you know. And so what happened in the pandemic, not just in Australia but around the world, was that journalists were being required to work 24-7 pumping out this really crucial public information on this pandemic. People were dying and yet 
who were they? There was only a few of them left in these newsrooms and there were layoffs all during the pandemic because advertising dried up. So what happened all over Australia, all over the US, advertising dried up, no money left to pay journalists. So they were less and less than they ever were. So yeah, it's a really interesting problem where people expect journalism, but they also hate journalists at the same time. There's a kind of uh, cognitive dissonance there. And there's no one asking who's paying, who's paying you. You know, I can't come and speak at your work for free because I have a gas bill to pay, (laughs) you know? Um, So yeah, it's a very interesting crisis. And, you know, someone like myself, the start of the pandemic, I was looking at those Centrelink queues where everyone was in masks. And I lost probably in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic around March last year, I lost $60,000 worth of income. So all of my media training, all of my speaking events and all of my commissions dried up. So editors I'd been working with for five years suddenly didn't want my stories anymore. So it was a very hard time. And I think we need to ask questions about who pays for journalism. And if you want quality journalism, which all evidence shows the public does, where is it going to come from? How are we going to fund it? Because there are, aren't there, Ginger, some businesses out there, particularly in the digital realm, who are pretty much predicated on either ripping other material content off or expecting people to write for nothing, to do internships as they're called, or on the offset that they might get a paying gig somewhere. And that that's the way that the value that's placed on content, as it's called these days, is so minuscule that some people do it because they feel it's their only opportunity to get a foot on the ladder towards a job as a journalist. That's right. (laughs) I've been very outspoken about this, Francis, because In 2017, I became internationally known because my work was plagiarised and I have been very outspoken against Mamma Mia and particularly the Daily Mail because of that. So I'm a social justice journalist and I really spend a lot of time going into dark places and trying to uncover stuff that no one talks about and asking these questions about how we treat each other and how society can be fairer. So this particular story was about men who, when they were children, had been sexually abused by their mothers. And it was a piece of research done by University of Canberra academic And I had gained the trust of these two men who had had this experience when they were children. And let me just be clear about those men. I mean, like all victims of sexual abuse, this had destroyed their lives. They were child rape victims. And so I gained their trust over a long period of time and I wrote this completely harrowing story. And it was compounded by the fact that no one believed them. And the thing that's important to say here is that their mental health was very, very fragile. They trusted me. Now, pretty much instantly, I published that on news.com.au and it was ripped off 80% by Mamma Mia and also by the Daily Mail. And my byline, I don't think, was used at all on the Daily Mail initially. But regardless of that fact, the headlines were atrocious, particularly on the Daily Mail. It was made out to be about sex, not about child abuse. And when that happened, I literally sat at my desk and cried because I was so scared about what was going to happen to those two men that I had promised to protect. And 
I wrote about it. I wrote about it on my Facebook. I wrote, I published the letter that I wrote to Mamma Mia. And this weird thing at that time was I was actually writing for Mamma Mia. <laughs> and I also sent the Daily Mail a, an invoice because they essentially refused to engage with me on it. And so it became a national and international news story. My name started trending on Twitter around Australia and eventually the editor of Mamma Maria rang me and I screamed at her. <laughs> she said, we wanted to share your story with everybody. And I said, it's not sharing, it's stealing, you know. And did you think about what would happen to these two men? You don't even know them. You don't know what situation they're in. And I also said, talking about Mia Friedman, I screamed at this editor, I wonder if you know what it's like to think about Mia Friedman sitting in her 12 point something million dollar mansion while I can't afford to register my car. You know, I just, on so many levels, it was morally wrong. And Mamma Mia did cop a lot of flack for that. They eventually took it down because their reader base was so outraged. The Daily Mail left it up for a long time. I'm not sure if it's still up. I got a very nasty letter from their lawyers, though. They had also plagiarized a number of other of my pieces. But I guess the point here is this is not free. It's not free emotionally, morally, or financially, you know, and those men paid a big price for that. And it really bothers me now that Mamma Mia is going to a subscription model because, like, what are they doing? Are they charging people money for stuff they've stolen? You know, it's very difficult. I actually had an intellectual property lawyer uh, contact me, a barrister, and he wanted to start a class action against Mamma Mia because there were so many people who this has who have experienced this. The problem is, though, that you cannot get freelancers to stand up against these publications because their work situation is so precarious. That's a really important point because that mirrors exactly what we within the union movement talk about all the time, that the current economy is based on individualising workers and denying them any form of collectivity to bargain as a cohort and then use their strength as a workforce to gain better paying conditions. And when you're isolated like freelancers are, you don't have any industrial bargaining power. You are one out against the machine. And it's a terrible situation to be in. It's a terrible situation to be in. Absolutely. And I suppose someone like myself, like I get more and more bullshit as I get older and I'm more and more outspoken. I don't care if I piss mama me off. But if you are a 21-year-old just coming out of university, you're trying desperately to get your foot on the ladder, you will write for Mamma Mia for free or other similar outlets. You will do unpaid internships. And I know from colleagues of mine who have worked inside Mamma Mia in particular, they always at any one time have dozens of unpaid young female interns and that bothers me you know because they're making a lot of money and I don't think that that's a sustainable model you know and the other thing that's happened in freelancing Francis and Sally is the prices have been driven down so pieces that are worth you know I've, I've been paid two thousand dollars for and worked on for six months I'm now being offered five hundred dollars for them and then you start asking these questions like it was already only a couple of cents an hour of my work. I can't now take a quarter of that money. You know, I can't keep cross-subsidizing in this way. So it's really problematic. Although I, I don't want to be too dire about it because I think podcasts like this one, podcasts like the one I am hosting for the Academy of the Social Sciences, it's almost like an alternative quality media is popping up. And Journalism is happening elsewhere 
outside the major mastheads. That's what I'm noticing. Well, that's a really nice thing to say. Thank you. And I think also, I mean, we talk about social media killing the printing press. Maybe that there's merit to that, but uh, it also kind of decentralizes um, information sharing and tweets aren't journalism. Um, and like, I'm not pretending that they are, but I do think that, you know, social media is part of the new media landscape. Just thinking, Ginger, about you mentioned uh, Mamma Mia saying to you, oh, no, we're just sharing your st- we're sharing your story. We're just sort of amplifying, sharing your story. And I was just thinking, like, God, what are the comparable industries here? Like, you just wouldn't get, like, a musician taking another musician's song and releasing it under their own band's name and just be like, well, I'm just sharing your work. But also I have changed all the words. Well, so it's a bit rude. Well, actually, the- there, there has been a case just <laughs> last week in the – Federal Court, I think. But that's what I mean. They've thrown Clive the book Palmer. <laughs> Clive Palmer was ripped off Twisted Sisters, We're Not Going to Take It, and changed it into a song that he used in his campaign, Aussie's mm. Not Going to Take It. It was awful, awful. He tried to claim, and this is the beautiful part, that he rewrote, rewrote the lyrics so it was a different song, and actually he was basing it on an 18th century hymn, uh, Oh Come All Ye Faithful. But he got done. He got. He had to pay them 1.5 million. This is bucks. what I mean. Like well, whoever it was. Heavy metal book- one, Clive Palmer nil. They threw the book at him. It went up to the courts. There were all these mechanisms. There's another conversation about like culture jamming and copyright in in music and and all the rest of it. But when I think about the Daily Mail, I'm just sharing your work. It seems to me that this is all out of work. It is expensive to take these cases to court. So I was told this would cost me $300,000 plus if I was going to try to take this to court. And... It is illegal under the law, but what this IP barrister told me is it hasn't actually been tested since the 1800s. So it goes on all the time. And when I have brought it to my editors at various publications and said, I've been ripped off by Mamma Mia or the Daily Mail, they say, we're not going to touch it because we do it too. So this is problematic on so many levels, not just on an intellectual kind of or emotional level for the individual. But if you think about society and that we need journalism and we need people to trust journalism and journalists and media outlets, this is eroding public trust in journalism at a time when we can ill afford to do that. You know, interestingly, I read some data that showed in the United States, once President Trump was elected, what happened was people flocked to quality journalism. So subscriptions to the New York Times, the Washington Post, these kind of outlets grew exponentially. And that's what research from Oxford University shows as well, that actually people are craving quality journalism. So it's not true, this kind of idea that people only want clickbait, they'll only read 40 seconds. Whenever I do a big investigation, usually for news.com.au, but sometimes for other outlets, if the story is compelling enough, people read to the end. They will read 2,000 words if they need that information or if they want that information. So it's about sort of redefining journalism and also thinking about public trust. The public has to trust journalists and journalists must be funded to do their jobs. Otherwise, democracy is actually going to fall apart. 
So, Ginger, if we dig into how the advertising model for journalism has been destroyed by the duopoly, say, between Google and Facebook, which has just soaked up all the advertising revenue. Here in Australia, a deal has been done with most major newspapers, most major digital platforms now, a revenue-sharing deal with those digital tech giants. Do you have any confidence at all that that deal will see a new revenue stream actually being delivered to paying journalists to do the sort of work you're talking about? Or is that being naive to expect that to happen? I would love to say, yes, great, that will happen. I suspect it won't. I think partly because, as Sally said earlier, the media environment is very fragmented. So some of the best journalism I'm seeing is not actually being done on those platforms. Some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. You know, the ABC is on its knees. It's had so many redundancies, so many budget cuts, and same with a lot of other outlets. So are the big players really where we need to look? I'm not sure. Do we trust those platforms? You know, my whole body of work around cyber hate says no. <laughs> Um, there's no reason to trust those platforms. They are revenue-driven. Their only motive is profit and they don't care if people get harmed in the process. And am I, as a freelancer, expecting the trickle-down from that? Not really, no. But I think there is some hope in freelancing. You know, I, one of the best stories I heard, so I knew I was coming on this podcast, I mean, a lot of freelancing groups, and I kind of put these questions out there about COVID, the pandemic, freelancing, and there was one just great story I want to share with you. So she was a young woman. She was a copywriter, and all that dried up in COVID. So she was a professional copywriter, but she wanted to be a journalist. She went on JobKeeper, and then she used that as the opportunity to kickstart her freelancing career. So she sought all this mentoring from freelancers all over the world. And then she just started getting published everywhere. And she said, thanks to COVID and thanks to the pandemic, you know, I'm basically now a successful freelancer. So I think there are ways still. But as you said before, Francis, we have to look at this collectively, not individually. Like that's one happy story. But there was a lot of unhappy stories. There was a lot of freelancing mothers suddenly at home with their kids trying to, you know, homeschool two kids not deemed essential workers and absolutely killing themselves like trying to deliver journalism that we needed one of the journalists who told me that story she was a science writer so she was busier than ever while not being deemed an essential worker and having to homeschool her two kids just to finish ginger are you going to stay in the game i mean you've 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 talked about how hard it is and you know all the barriers that are to making a living out of it Clearly, you're passionate and brilliant at it. Thank you. Are you going to stay? I am going to stay because I actually think it's where the most exciting work is being done. And so the podcast I host is, as I said, it's a different kind of journalism and it's well-paid journalism. So these models are emerging. But I would say to freelancers starting out, like think really hard about your business model and also join a union so that you've got that collective voice you've got that collective action and the union has been really helpful to me like both when I was made redundant and also very recently when the New South Wales police would not answer the questions about cyber hate the new union came into bat for me so I think that's important so you don't just feel like a little person on your own at the behest of all these forces in society. Great to talk to you Ginger remind people what the name of your podcast is and where they can find it. 
It's called Seriously Social. It's brought to you by the Academy of the Social Sciences and it's on all platforms that you get your podcasts on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for making time for us today on The Job. Thank you. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. So great to have Ginger Gorman telling us her incredible story here on the job about life as a freelancer and having to deal with plagiarism and the implications of people ripping off your work. The story that she wrote in 2017 about those two young men and their experience of sexual abuse is horrifying as to how that all unfolded by other people ripping off her work. Yeah, there's so many layers of bad faith acting, I suppose. This is not a structural long-term solution, but one of the things I try to do is support independent journalists via Patreon yep. or via their, you know, if they have a subscription newsletter or whatever. It's not going to solve this problem on a sort of global scale, but I do feel like it's something that if you have the means, it's like a way of supporting this sort of really important work. Yeah, and just being mindful when you are actively consuming that sort of information, you're reading those websites, the ones that you go to regularly, ask yourself that question, are you contributing? Uh, are, can you subscribe? Can you contribute to a, a particular platform that you get a lot of value out of? Because it's only through us returning some value to those institutions that we trust that they thrive and survive. So make sure you do that if you can, Sally. Great to hang out again. Nice to see you and nice to talk to you all. Make sure you review us. We love your reviews. Get on your favourite podcast platform. Uh, Write us a review. Give us five stars. uh, And, uh, you know, give us as many stars as you can afford anyway. We'll we'll take whatever (laughs) you got. And tell the world that you love this particular podcast. It helps everyone else find it. And uh, we want more people joining us here on the job. So I'll catch you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.